Good evening and welcome to the London School of Economics. I'm Paul Mason and in this edition of Analysis I'll be speaking to the economist Professor Robert Frank about the startling claim in his new book that Charles Darwin is a better guide to economic reality than Adam Smith, indeed than to all theories based on rational choice. If you want to tweet this as we go, the hashtag is very literally LSE Darwin, hash LSE Darwin. Robert Frank is an economist and is an econ Robert Frank is an economics professor at Cornell University. His books, which have been translated into 22 languages, have focused on the way status and emotion affect our economic choices, on the way competition can produce increasingly winner-takes-all confrontations. But in his latest book, he takes aim at the libertarian right in America and its insistence that the pursuit of individual self-interest and perfect competition are the only route to the good society. He's also co-author with Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke of the textbook Principles of Economics. If only we had all read that before things went wrong. <laughs> Robert Frank, welcome. We've built 200 years of economic theory on the achievements of Adam Smith. What did we do wrong? Yeah, I, I appreciate the, the question because I'm one of Smith's biggest fans. I think one of the things that's distressed me about the book in, is that in making my prediction that Darwin would someday be uh, seen as the father of economics, not Smith, uh, I seem to be selling Smith short. I, I try to make clear in the book that my target is not Smith himself, who I admire as much as any man, uh, but, but really the modern caricature of Smith as put forward by the free market enthusiasts who are his biggest disciples, particularly in the US. They think that he thought that you could just turn selfish, greedy people loose in the marketplace and their, their efforts to feather their own nests would lead uh, magically, uh, they'd be guided as if by an invisible hand to produce the greatest good for all. I think uh, Smith did not think that. Uh, he, he often emphasized that men of the same trade seldom meet even for merriment, but that their conversation quickly turns to schemes to defraud customers or workers. He was very skeptical of market power. He didn't think you didn't need government regulation by any means. Uh, he, he was an enormously thoughtful. I, you can't pick up the wealth of nations and turn to any random page and not be filled with wonder at the insights he had, especially when he had them. I mean, nobody, nobody was around to teach him any of that. He saw it all for the first time. So I'm a big admirer of Smith's. What I think is modern disciples get wrong uh, with their prescription, which is essentially get government out of the way and let markets work their magic uh, is, is that individual interests and collective interests don't always coincide in, in the manner contemplated by the simple version of the invisible hand story. So it's the Smith model of competition that you think is not complex enough or what? It's the history has, has rendered it outmoded? I, I think what we'll, we'll decide in time is that the invisible hand story as portrayed by the modern uh, disciple of Smith is really just an interesting special case of Darwin's more general view of the competitive process. Uh, it, it's not true that individual interest always coincides with group interest. I think uh, what Darwin's great insight was that Life is graded on the curve. Sometimes individual interests coincide with group interests, but often they don't. Whenever there's a conflict, it's indi individual interests that tend to trump, often to the great cost uh, uh, of larger groups. And 
And that's where I think we need to rethink the role of the market and the government in modern society. We can't just presume that if there's perfect competition, markets will do everything right. I think many liberals are willing to concede that. Oh, if markets were competitive, they'll say everything would be just fine. We've got to intervene because they're not competitive. That, that in my view, is not the problem. Professor Frank, it's rare to read an economics book and come away with such a startling image as one comes away with from the, the, the beginning of yours, which is of an elk with giant antlers. Explain to us, if you will, what do you mean by that, uh, that metaphor, that, that, that analysis? The, the evolution of antlers in the bull elk, I think, is a nice instance of a trait that evolved uh, for the reproductive advantage of individual animals, but whose ultimate presence ended up being a handicap for a larger group of the same animals. So if you think about the bull elk, uh, they're like males in other vertebrate species, determined to take more than one mate if they can. Uh, the, the if they can qualifier is important. Uh, it means if some take more than one mate, others don't get any. And that's, of course, the ultimate loser slot in the Darwinian scheme of things. So, so naturally, males will take any step they possibly can to increase their odds of landing a mate. Uh, they fought with one another. The antlers were uh, an effective bit of weaponry in those battles. And so a mutation that coded for larger ones was very quickly selected. The mutations accreted. Uh, the antlers on the modern an animals now span four feet or more. They weigh 40 pounds. Imagine uh, uh, an appendage of that size on your head. If you're chased into a wooded area by wolves, you're easily surrounded and killed. Uh, if, if you were an elk and could put your hoof on the red button at the count of three and say all antlers get cut back by half, uh, you'd want to do that uh, because you'd be more mobile. You'd be better able to escape from wolves who had chased you into the woods. But each fight that you were engaged in would be resolved exactly as before, since it's relative antler size that matters. So it's not that, that, that that's a threat to the species of elk. It's not that the, the antlers keep growing forever. There are limits on, on that, of course. There's no animal with 40 feet across antlers. Uh, he wouldn't be a very effective competitor for mates. He'd never get his nose off the turf. Uh, there's an equilibrium. The point is that the equilibrium isn't good from the perspective of bulls as a group. I, I, I emphasize not from the perspective of the species, uh, as biologists are quick to point out. There are superfluous males in all sexually reproducing species. We don't need so many males. A few will do. So if a few bull elk gets around and killed by wolves, that's not such a problem for elk as a species. But I'm just trying to think about this from the point of view of the bulls themselves. We can all I think, imagine a, a corollary in economics to that, maybe a large firm that becomes so large that it proclaims itself to be maybe the dancing giant one uh, year and then almost collapses the next year, or uh, is hegemonic in software one year and then is uh, fighting for its life uh, at the very bottom of the uh, food chain a few years later. Okay, so that works. What in Smith does not encompass that reality? What in the Smith model of competition doesn't help us to understand Microsoft or ABB? I, I think Smith, uh, in, in his view, when he was writing, would have viewed Microsoft as a threat because it has such dominance, such power, such size. It can, it can just persuade you to buy bad products uh, because it has the, the, the billions behind its it, it's Not that we commercial. are saying on BBC Radio 4 that Microsoft's products are necessarily bad, but... 
I'm not for economic terms, we can I'm not saying they're problems. necessarily bad. I, I, I will say I don't like them. <laughs> but, but I'm not stuck with them. Uh, they've got, they've got a, a, an enormously expensive ad campaign, and it has very little effect on me because other firms can find me. They, they have good reason to believe I'm dissatisfied with the offerings coming from Microsoft, and they can make me aware that there's something better and cheaper on offer, and I buy it. So, so the idea that, that firms can just overcharge me because they have market power, that, that was a problem more in Smith's day than it is now. Now the information revolution lets the, the competing firm with a better product find me and, and, and make me aware of what's on offer. So let's be clear then. What are the, what are the actual distortions. What is, the, what is the four foot wide elk antler in the room here in modern capitalism that you think has, what are the distortions that, that, that the market has produced? I, I think a, a, a really uh, fruitful example is the whole question of, of how much safety the market gives workers and the like. Uh, and, and here I think the, the, the first thing that got me thinking about the conflict between individual and group interests here was a, a vivid example offered by Tom Schelling. Uh, he, he noted that hockey players, if they were given a, a, a choice, would always skate without helmets. But then, he noted, uh, if, if they took a vote on the manner uh, in, in a secret ballot, they would vote often unanimously for a rule requiring themselves to wear helmets. So, so what's going on, guys, he wants to know. If helmets are so great, why don't you just wear them? Why do you need a rule? And, and I think his explanation really got at this Darwinian notion that what is in the individual interests in competitive situations, when rank is really what matters, isn't necessarily what's in the group's interest. Okay. Now, if you are lucky enough to attend a mass meeting by Glenn Beck, you'll notice uh, as people arrive on their Harley Davidsons that not many of them want to be wearing helmets because there are people in the world who believe that it's their right not to wear the helmet on the hockey uh, ice rink or on the back of a Harley. What, what is wrong with that argument? So if you, if you think about Schelling's explanation, uh, it's persuasive. Uh, what he said was that if you're a hockey player, you want to win. If you take your helmet off, you get a slight competitive edge. You can see better, you can hear better, maybe, maybe you're more able to intimidate your opponents because you're crazy enough to skate without a helmet. Uh, and, and so, and so if, if you've ever been an athlete, you know how important it is to get an edge. Uh, sure, you don't want to get injured either, but that's maybe and it's not right now. The edge is now. So it's a compelling move to take your helmet off, but the other side won't sit idly by for that. They'll restore the balance by taking their own helmets off. And then the equilibrium is one in which everybody's skating without a helmet. Nobody's got a competitive edge. Wouldn't it be better, they reason, to have a rule requiring us all to wear helmets? And so it's, it's an easy choice for them in that situation. If we're left to our own devices, we won't wear helmets, but we want to wear them. But the only way we can get there is to require ourselves to wear them. Isn't I mean, obvi one obvious difference uh, with the way Smith describes competition and the way Darwin and the model you are, you are adopting from Darwin describes competition is that in Smith, the actors are rational. Um, we have evolutionary biologists, I think, in the audience who will tell us that many of them believe that the actors are, you know, are, are genes and they, are, they, they may act successfully or otherwise, but they're not rational. What difference does it make? Because surely the rationality of the actor in Smith is that which prevents, theoretically, the four-foot-wide elk antlers 
ever being created. No, no, I think that the, the precise point is that the individuals are rational. Uh, the, the elk, of course, aren't thinking about this in rational choice terms. It's just uh, the blind action of selection. But, but the hockey player is not making an error to take his helmet off. Uh, he values the competitive edge more than he reckons the cost of the, the, the risk of injury. So that's a rational move when viewed from the individual perspective. It's just no one gains anything when everybody does it. That's, that's the rub. And so I think uh, a rational person at that point says, it, can't we do something about this? The elk, of course, can't do anything about it. They're stuck with their big antlers. But, but rational individuals have the communication skills, the cognitive skills to say, look, this is, this is not the best outcome attainable for us. Nations embroiled in military arms races. It's the same structural set of incentives. We're, we each build more bombs, hoping not to be less well-armed than the opposing side, since the consequences of that are so dire. And yet, the equilibrium is we spend a huge percentage of our GDP on armaments. Wouldn't it be better to spend less and have more left over to build hospitals and schools? That's the logic. So it's, it's not irrational what the individuals are doing. It's just that individual rationality doesn't coincide with collective rationality. Another way, another way of attacking the, the, the the, the dichotomy you've set up between Smith and Darwin here would be to say, well, at least in, at least in evolution, it encompasses crisis because the end result of a, of a, of a, of a dead end, uh, of an evolutionary dead end, is, um, is the extinction of a species. And we are seeing a, the odd extinction uh, in our time of um, business models. Um, what, again, bringing you back to Smith, what is, what is lacking in Smith in the explanation of, of that, the catastrophic crisis, the dead end? Craig, Smith knew that there were crises, that, that firms went extinct, and I, th I think uh, oftentimes when a firm goes bankrupt, that is part of a rational winnowing process, somebody with a bad idea that's poorly executed. Uh, if, if the resources that went behind that idea are freed up to go elsewhere, that's a good thing. Uh, so so it, it's not my claim that competition doesn't perform lots of useful functions in, in steering resources to more valuable uses. The, the invisible hand story is really, as I say, quite a, a remarkable story in many domains. Where it breaks down is when... Uh, I think the key thing in the case of the antlers, why that was inefficient, was that it, the traits were evolving not for elk to compete against the environment, but for elk to compete against their own kind. Uh, and when you see the business world, much of the competition in the business world, uh, and among consumers for that matter, is against our own kind. And when, when the payoff occurs only if you get into a, a, the upper part of the, the rank ordering, there are only so many slots in the upper part of the rank ordering. Anything I do to improve my chances of ending up there makes your chances lower. So there, there are a lot of self-canceling behaviors that we see in the, in the modern marketplace. And if there were nothing you could do about that, then well and good. We'll, we'll take the benefits of competition where we find them and, and suffer uh, the waste when it occurs. But uh, my claim in the book is that there are often gentle changes in incentives we can, we can uh, usher into the picture that will guide resources away from the wasteful activities. I think, I think anybody who's met um, a top investment banker, uh, I may be generalizing here, but when you meet them, they often do have this Smithian model in their minds of, of, of a justification of what they are doing. So in pursuing my own self-interest, I am, and the firm's self-interest, uh, 
I am pursuing the good of all because uh, to make the best policeman is my self-interest and morality or, or uh, compromise makes the policeman soft and that will make society go wrong. Now, if they had your theory, how would investment bankers have thought in the run-up to the catastrophic loss of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers? Yeah, I, I, I think it is true that they have a lot of very self-serving rhetoric. Uh, they're, they're in, to my ear, they sound much like uh, the social Darwinists of the 19th century. They, they think anything that survives and prospers in the marketplace is to be celebrated morally. It's good. We want to encourage more of that and, and less of whatever doesn't survive. But I, I don't think it was fair really to think of Darwin as, as a, a social Darwinist at all. He was, he was really a very humane man by, by most accounts I've read of him as a person. He, he saw that competitive imperatives led animals to do things that were brutal uh, in terms of the, the well-being of, of other members of their groups. The, the alpha lion, the first thing he does is murder the cub sired by the previous alpha male. That's a, if you see footage of that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think it was a very nice thing to witness. Uh, and I'm sure that there's a lot of emotional carnage for the, the, the lions involved in that, in addition to the actual bloodletting. So, so I don't think he thought that whatever survives in, in, in nature was to be morally celebrated. The, the bankers think that. But uh, I think if you want to read Darwin as a theory of morality, it, it points you to the conflict between individual and group. And sometimes what benefits the individual puts a much bigger cost on the group Nowhere more than in the financial services industry, by the way. Uh, we've sent the best and brightest of our students to that industry where they're fighting over uh, bits of the pie, not creating any new pie. There, 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 there are only so many deals to be struck, and, and they're going to get struck whether we send 10% of our best and brightest to that industry or one half of 1%. So, so we're, we're not sending the right number to that industry. You, in the book, um, lay out a, a clear set of arguments that take us from this idea of a more complex understanding of competition to uh, the problems of today, which are, uh, as you describe, uh, the, almost the sort of possession of the policy space by this libertarian theory of rational choice. Okay, so what do you do? What's the, what's the policy outcome of, of the, the theory you put forward? I, I try to attack the libertarian rhetoric in its own terms. Again, I assume markets are competitive. I assume people are rational. I mean, neither of those things is strictly true, of course. The behavioral economists have been making hay for decades on the fact that people are not rational much of the time. Uh, Amos Tversky, who, who died in the mid-'90s, one of the, the founders, uh, liked to say, he was a, a social psychologist, he liked to say, uh, my colleagues, they study artificial intelligence. Me, I study natural stupidity. Uh, he, he could point to situation after situation where people had all the information they needed and they still got it wrong. Uh, so, but I don't, I, I'm not going to go there. I'm going I'm to tell the right wing, yes, people are rational. And they're not that irrational. People make mistakes, but, but for the most part, they've got goals and they've, when they have experience, they know how to achieve them. Markets are competitive. They're well-informed, or they can become informed. So I grant all those things. The only thing I add is that third assumption, that rank matters, that we're not competing over absolute amounts. We're competing over rankings. It's, and, and that was Darwin's insight. It's not how fast you are. It's whether you're faster than the runner you're competing against that matters. And, and whenever you're in that last situation, you get uh, actions by one side that, that are offset precisely by uh, defensive actions by the other side. If you're a merchant, 
you want a sign that people will see. What, what must a sign be like in order to be, be seen by people driving by? It must stand out from the visual field. It's not how big it is, it's whether it's bigger than the other signs. It's not how bright it is, it's, it doesn't have more wattage than the, the other signs. And so the, the equilibrium amount of signs gets huge, but, and then we get a, a visual blight that sometimes we decide, hey, we can do better that with a few zoning laws. So a zoning law would be an example of a policy. Okay, so zoning law is one. What else? I mean, you're talking here to libertarian America. They don't like zoning laws. What else don't they like? They don't Tax. like them. They don't like them. Uh, they don't like regulation. They don't like taxes. Uh, safety regulation is, is, is one where I think they've got a, an especially powerful rhetorical uh, 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 set of arguments to offer. They'll say, of course, workers can get higher wages if they take riskier jobs. The, the firms don't have to invest in so much expensive safety equipment. So the, the firm can afford to pay more. Uh, the worker can be careful and decide, I'm willing to take an, a little extra risk. You all took a risk getting here tonight. Uh, we, we take risks all the time. I'm willing to be careful and take the higher wage in compensation for the extra risk. Then the libertarian says, where does the government have any right to come get between us and say we can't do that by regulating our safety? And my response to that, based on this Darwinian perspective, is that if, if the contract involved only the parties to it directly, uh, I would say, fine, do what you like. But it doesn't involve just them. If I'm a worker, I've got lots of motives for getting more income, but one important one is I want to send my kids to the best possible school I can. The good schools are located. Uh, everyone knows this. If you haven't thought about it, you'll realize it. They're located in the neighborhoods where the houses are more expensive. So if I want to send my kids to a school of average quality, if I'm in the middle of the earnings distribution, what must I do? I must outbid 50% of all families who are trying to do the same thing. One way I can get a leg up doing that is to sell my safety for a higher wage. So that puts me ahead in the bidding. But then you can do the same. You're a, it's like the hockey players. They're not going to sit idly by. You sell your safety, I sell my safety, we each bid for houses in better school districts. At the end of the day, we succeed only in bidding up the price of those houses. Half the kids go to bottom half school, same as before. That's wasteful. I think I've worked out what you're trying to do. It, you're trying to convince the American right to accept regulation and taxation on its own terms, aren't you? You're, yes. you're, not, you're not saying that information is asymmetric so it can never work. You're accepting the basic principle, not just of... Adam Smith, but of Ayn Rand, maybe. Uh, but you're, you're drawing a different conclusion. Right. Has anybody, yeah. has anybody from the American right accepted this conclusion? Uh, I, I've been surprised uh, by the, the friendly reception I've gotten from the right, actually, especially to, to some of the tax proposals I, I, I advance in the book. Uh, I had expected more pushback. I think the, 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 the right is not used to being challenged in its own terms. They're used to being told that's not fair or you need to be more empathetic or you need, you need to uh, be uh, more mindful of the need to regulate monopoly to which they say uh, fairness, that's a fuzzy notion or monopoly, there isn't any uh, effective monopoly anymore. So I think they're, they're puzzled when they hear an argument couched in their own terms and they're, they're, they don't seem quite sure what, what to respond to it. We'll come back to some of these specific tax proposals but I want to hear from the audience now. Um, we're in the London School of Economics, upstairs in the senior common room there is a picture of uh, uh, a lovely painting of Sidney and Beatrice Webb. I understand it might fall off the wall if the answer to this question is yes. <laughs> Are there any libertarians here who would like to right. talk? Sir, you, uh, do we have a microphone? What do you think about this, uh, this theory? 
I think that you're really looking at the wrong group. If you think of the bull elk, then actually they have large antlers. But if that's a wrong evolutionary strategy for them, then some other bull elk in the other part of the Arctic, perhaps, are going to dominate. And that, uh, that, that evolutionary trait is going to die out. So instead, what you're looking at is you're looking at the wrong market. You're trying to say, well, regulating to make sure that Microsoft and Google don't compete against each other too thoroughly is a good thing. But of course, if they compete against each other thoroughly, yes, it does hurt Google and Microsoft to have to compete, but it benefits consumers. So as a result, it benefits the whole of society, not just the group you're looking at, which is a very static view of the economy. Give us your name, please. And no, that's Oliver Cooper. Okay, Oliver Cooper. Yeah, the, the, you, I, I think you haven't quite construed the point about the elk. Uh, it's not that the... Yeah, it, it, it's, it's not that the antlers are too big for the individual elk. They're exactly the right size for the individual elk. Uh, if they were any bigger, he'd be more likely to be killed by wolves. And uh, if they were any smaller, he would never win a battle for access to females. They're an exquisite balance between those competing ends. In equilibrium, herds in the north, herds in the south, herds in the east, herds in the west, all have antlers that are too big for that reason because the antlers are self-canceling when they confer advantage to the individuals. I get bigger ones, you get bigger ones, we gain no advantage at all from that. And so if there were another uh, herd of elk that tried to move in with smaller antlers to try to compete its way into our group, what females would mate with them? They'd lose every battle, they'd get no mates. So they'd, if they tried to horn in, so to speak, on our group, they'd be left out in the cold. What about the Darwinians? Are there any biologists or Darwinian scholars here? Sir at the back, and then, and then Sam. Uh, thank you, yes. Um, modern evolutionary studies have been much... Give us your name. Would you start again and give us your name first, please? Oh, my name's John Ashworth, and I used to be director here. Um, modern e evolutionary biologists have been much exercised by the appearance of altruistic behaviour, particularly in social animals like ourselves. And Bill Hamilton, a PhD student here many years ago, did some very elegant... Um, mathematics, which uh, accounted for how this could uh, evolve. And I was wondering whether you've tried to apply those thoughts, and particularly Hamiltonian uh, mathematics, uh, to an economic situation. Yeah, in fact, in fact, I've written on exactly that subject. I think Hamil Hamilton leaned very hard on the notion of kin selection. Yeah. We would be altruistic uh, on behalf of uh, Conspecifics that we were related to closely, especially because if we if we were able to assist them in their efforts to survive and reproduce, uh, then we would in effect be helping move forward into the next round copies of genes very much like the ones we carry. So, so that's one avenue. Uh, another another avenue, the one I explored, was uh, if if I'm a trustworthy person. Uh, that that's always been. Uh, a very mysterious uh, thing to emerge in a competitive environment. Uh, if I'm trustworthy in a situation where no one can tell whether I've cheated or not and I'm dealing in one-shot games with, with non-kin, why would it ever pay me to, to evolve as a trustworthy person? And, and, and there, uh, the, the argument I pressed on that issue was that the moral emotions have, have telltale traces that they leave upon the face and, 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 and the voice. and. If there's something about me that enables you to tell I'm a trustworthy person, uh, yes, there'll be a cost to me. I won't cheat you, even though I could without any probability of being caught. But because you can forecast accurately that I won't do that, 
I'm a, I'm a, a very valuable employee for you to hire in situations that require trust. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting work, I think, being done along those lines. And it's, again, all uh, about uh, the conflict between individual interest and group interest. Cheating is in the individual's interest in many cases. It's not in the interest of the group that everyone cheat. Question here. Uh, Samuel Britton. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. I want to know what your message, if any, is for people on this side of the Atlantic. Going through your book, I see you annihilating people like the uh, Tea Party, the Night Watchman State, the Ghost of Ayn Rand, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, there's hardly anyone in, in this side of the Atlantic who holds any of these almost idiotic laissez-faire positions, although quite a lot of us believe in a sensible market. Now, what is the message of your book uh, on the, for this side of the Atlantic, or is it just spectator sport that we should watch? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. Uh, I, I think we've seen... Uh, an increase in income inequality on this side of the Atlantic uh, that's followed in the wake of the one we've seen in the U.S. In the U.S. it's gone much further than it's gone here. Uh, and in, in uh, the U.K. Uh, it will proceed further, I predict. I think, I think uh, in the financial services industry it's, it's happened because of regulatory favors in large part, but in other occupations it's happened mainly because of market forces. Market forces now amplify the, the, the reach of the most talented performers in each domain and, and, and makes their, their actual uh, value in, in, in competitive terms greater than it used to be. And that's why we've seen this huge burst of inequality. And, and that, in turn, has spawned an enormously uh, inefficient pattern of expenditure escalation. So if you think about the rich, they spend more on coming-of-age parties for their kids. They build bigger mansions. Uh, not because they're bad people, but because they have more money. Uh, that's what everybody does when they get more money. They build bigger and, and buy better. When the rich build bigger, the, the middle class doesn't seem annoyed by that uh, at all. They, they, they like the, the, the pictures of the mansions. They, they, they will tune in to the TV shows about the life stories of the rich and famous to see them. But there's a group just below the rich that's very heavily influenced by what the rich build. They travel in the same social circles, maybe now the near rich need a ballroom in their house too because now we have our daughter's wedding at home, not in a hotel or a club. They build bigger. Then the near, near rich build bigger and it cascades all the way down. Now the median new house built in the U.S. is about 50% larger than its counterpart from 30 years ago. What that means is that the median earner, in order to send his kids to a median quality school, must spend a whole lot more than before just to achieve that basic goal even though the median real wage is no bigger than it was 30 years ago. Uh, and, and that's a huge burden for the people in the middle. American weddings uh, now, on average, cost $28,000 a piece. Uh, in 1980, that's, that's the only uh, comparison figure I could find in, in inflation-adjusted terms, 11000 Does anybody imagine that the people who were getting married in 1980 were happier because their weddings uh, were less happy because their weddings cost so much less. There was a standard for weddings. They met it. They, they, they were happy or not when they got married uh, in both of those years. The extra expenditures were mutually offsetting. They just raised the bar that, that defined how, how big a party you had to have to suitably mark that special occasion. So, so that process is going along uh, 
on this side of the Atlantic too, and the, the main tax policy proposal I offer in the book, uh, and, and yes, you're right, I thought the libertarians were the ones I had to get out of the way in order to get anybody to listen to that proposal in the US, I think would be just as valuable here in the UK and in Europe. Uh, so yeah, the, the people who are in the way of that tax policy here may be different from the ones just I was Just explain to us again what the, the key policy is. Yeah, the, the, the key recommendation in, in the book is to scrap the income tax altogether. In its place, adopt a steeply progressive tax on consumption expenditures for the year. And, and the way that works is you report your income to the tax authorities as you would now. Simplify it greatly if you can. That's, that's a good thing in any event. Then report your savings for the year. We know how to do that for tax-exempt retirement accounts that already exist. Then take off a big standard deduction, let's say 20,000 uh, pounds. The difference, income minus your savings minus that standard deduction, that's your taxable consumption. And then tax that number at a very low rate to begin with. But as the number rises uh, uh, up into the stratosphere, where it is for, for many families now, the marginal tax rate on the next dollar can go up almost without uh, in, any logical limit. So, so imagine. And here's the, here's, here's the fiscal magic in a tax like this. I, I claim that this tax proposal can create new wealth out of thin air. It can transform lead into gold. So you ought to be interested in that here on this side of the Atlantic, too, if, if, if I'm right about that. So, so here's the claim. If, if you're spending 4 million pounds a year, you're in a high bracket. Let's say the marginal tax rate is 100% on the next pound you consume. So you're thinking about adding a two million pound addition to your mansion. That's going to cost you four million pounds now. Two million for the addition, two million for the tax. People think the rich don't respond to prices, but they do. Why are the houses in London smaller than they are elsewhere? Because real estate prices are higher here. The rich would scale back their additions if they were confronted with that tax. They'd say, let's put some of that money into the tax sheltered account build a mansion addition half as big as the one we were planning. That way it'll end up costing us the same. And here's the magic step. Others would do likewise, and so the new smaller additions that we'd all build would serve us just as well as the bigger ones would have. Robert, you, you're up against here not just a theory, but a culture, aren't you? And not just in the United States. There are a few big house-building uh, people here in London, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, many of them have gained their wealth through what Marx called primitive uh, capitalist accumulation. Um, what, look, you know, mod the modern world doesn't like that. It just doesn't like tax. It doesn't like the collective uh, solution to these problems. And you, you, know, you yourself in the book bemoan uh, the state of the US infrastructure, uh, its crumbling nature, but the rich can live with that. I mean, you are fighting a losing battle, certainly in the USA. Yeah, I, I, I really intended the book to be a, a, a sort of a primer for grown-ups about the idea of taxes. I mean, uh, our libertarian right, you, you're right, you don't have them, but I, I bet you have people like them We do. Here. I'd just like uh, to say on the record, we have a lot of libertarian right-wing people here. Not very many in effective place. Not okay, in the, to, not in the but, conservative but party leadership, no. In April, which is tax time in the U.S., they'll get up on the stump in high dudgeon and say, 
all taxation is theft. Do you have people who make such statements here? Um, well, wait a minute. Are there anybody, Samuel Britton, is there anybody in the audience who does believe that? And let's give them their due. Sir, wait a minute, please. Give us your name and speak into the microphone if you don't mind. My name is Brian Micklethwaite and I used to work for the Libertarian Alliance and I am a libertarian of exactly the kind Sam Britton despises. It's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> and although I have not written a publication called Taxation is Theft, I have published one, and I admired it very much. It compared taxation to robbery and made many very good points about the violent nature of both processes. Here, here's the, the point I would make in response to the, the claim that all taxation is theft. So the alternative is what? Voluntary taxation? If, if we had a country with voluntary taxation, here's what I predict would happen. I predict some people would pay taxes even if they were voluntary, but then in time they would notice that their neighbors weren't paying taxes, and they would feel that's not fair, they're not paying, I'm not going to pay either. There wouldn't be much tax revenue before long. Uh, there wouldn't be much of a government you could fund with the little tax revenue that, that you'd have. You couldn't maintain an army. You would be invaded in due course by a country that had an army financed with mandatory taxes that it levied on its citizens. And then you would pay mandatory taxes to the, that, that government. I think you're dis <laughs> I, I think here, Professor Frank, you might be describing Greece there. <laughs> Nobody likes taxes, but adults know you have to pay taxes. Uh, that's the price of a civilized society. If you don't have taxes, you can't have a government. You think you don't want to have a government, that's your ideal. Uh, which country do you want to move to? Uh, Sudan? <laughs> there, there are some countries that have, in effect have no government. You would, no libertarians I know would want to move to those countries. So, just give us your question into, into the microphone, please. Uh, Paul Allred, so, so the logic of your argument there is we only need to raise taxes for an army to defend ourselves. Oh, if you want to think that's all government should do, we can argue that. That doesn't seem like argument. If we didn't have an army, we'd be invaded. So well, I we, say if, if all taxation is theft, we wouldn't have an army. If we raise taxes for to defend ourselves, like the English did, you know, at the time of the Civil War, that you know, we've got a long tradition of this historically. So you know, maybe the libertarians will get up on the stump and say, now all taxation in excess of what we need to support an army is theft. And I, I can have the same argument. We'll extend it. It won't be the fact that we can't have an army that will be the reason that that doesn't make sense. It will be other reasons. In the book, uh, you make a plea for the importance of context to economics. And you ask, I think, you, you've asked other econ economists, some of the distinguished ones I think you've worked with, why modern economics is so hostile to context, why it claims for itself this high ground of mathematical purity. What, what, did, they, what did they answer? I, I'm, I'm still uh, struggling with that question. This, to me, is the, the, the big issue in the sociology of knowledge uh, in the areas I've worked in. Uh, the standard economic models, I assume the ones that are taught here at LSE as well, completely ignore the role of context in shaping demand. So uh, the, the utility a consumer gets from his house, it depends only on the absolute qualities of the house. That's, that's so transparently not a correct way to think about that issue. I, I lived for two years in Nepal, the poorest country on the earth. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer many years ago there. I lived in a two-room house. 
It had no plumbing. It had no electricity. The roof leaked when it rained hard. Uh, none of you would want your friends to know where you lived here in the UK if you lived in a house like that. But at no moment did I ever feel uh, ashamed of living in that house. I was proud to entertain guests in it. It was a nice house compared to the houses that my fellow high school teachers lived in, in that context. Uh, and to, to think that context doesn't matter for your evaluations of things and what you feel you need is just, uh, that's a notion that describes a world that's nothing like the world we live in. So I'm, uh, I've not yet ever heard a, a, a cogent response to my question, why is it economists are loath to incorporate context into their models of, of demand? Doesn't Smith implicitly give one in the sense that he is trying to describe the mechanics, albeit he's influenced by mechanism and the, the science of his age, the mechanics of the economic part of society, and he writes a whole other book about the moral relationship between people? Or is that not, in fact, the, the right relationship between these two sets of ideas. Ought not we to pursue an economics that does describe the laws of economics before we start talking about morals or altruism? I, I think Smith's view was that's all part of a, a package. Uh, a lot of people think markets undermine morals. Smith's view was, I think, different. Uh, I think the, the merchant had to be able to postpone gratification long enough to deliver on a promise that he made to a customer. And, and in, in primitive pre-market societies, people didn't have much practice at doing that, but you couldn't succeed as a merchant unless you got good at that. And that's really a, a, a big part of what it means to be moral, is to set aside your, your impulses of the moment and, and act on a longer view. So I, I, I think, uh, yeah, Smith, Smith is not the person we want to uh, turn to if we want to look for commentary and thought that's hostile to the idea of morality. He was very much uh, of a a view that that's an essential part of what it means to be a member of society and to function effectively. Let's have a few more questions. Down here, sir. My name's Arndt Leining. I'm a student at this school here. So you take issue in the fact that Americans are building bigger houses and uh, are celebrating more expensive weddings. But those people aren't burning that money. They're employing people to build those big houses, to convene those big weddings. So they're making contribution to their economy until their communities. Now instead you're arguing we should have a tax system that incentivizes people to save more. But wasn't it more savings that got us into trouble we are into now? Uh, more savings roaming the world, looking for places to invest, constructing all those complicated financial products, I guess, in all this mess. Is that really a good idea? It, it was indeed financial deregulation that got us into the mess that we got into. The problem wasn't that Americans were saving too much. We weren't saving anything at all, basically. We had, we had negative savings rates in the, in the mid-2000s. Uh, it's not that man mansion additions are useless, uh, although I think beyond some point, uh, probably they are. Here's an interesting thought experiment. You have two worlds. They're identical, except for one difference. The wealthy live in 60,000 square foot mansions in one world. In the other, they live in 30,000 square foot mansions. We've got a hedonometer that registers accurately how happy they are in the two worlds. And the correct answer is in the envelope here. I, I'm willing to bet my entire retirement savings account that the answer would be that the people in the 30,000 foot mansion world would be happier 
than the people in the 60,000 foot mansion world. I think the only reason you need a bigger mansion beyond some point is that you're expected to have one that's like the, the mansions of your peers. You have to entertain in a certain style. But it's a lot of trouble if you have a bigger mansion. There's staff you have to recruit and train and supervise. There's tell-all memoirs that you have to worry about, security issues. Just think about running these big properties. It's, it's a nuisance. If, if you don't need one, it would be better somehow. So, so those dollars, it's not that they're useless, although they might be. You can, you can fix bridges with those dollars. You can find cures for cancer with those dollars. There's lots of useful things you can spend those dollars on. That's, that's just antlers. Uh, you know, that's not useful. But, but Robert, in, in the land of the 36-foot yacht, the, the man or woman with the 35-foot yacht is always going to be unhappy, aren't they? Yeah, in reality, uh, the thought experiment breaks down as soon as you put the curve in. You, 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 you yourself argue that, that, that competition is about degree, that these worlds don't exist, and therefore you know, we're not going to get a halving of anything, are we? We don't in nature, and we don't in economics. No, if... if I mean, the, the helmet rule protects the players. They still try as hard as they can to win, but in the process, they don't injure one another as often or as severely. If we made building bigger more expensive, then we would shift the marginal dollar away from building bigger to saving an investment, which in the US at least, we don't do nearly enough of, and which would help the economy grow more rapidly. There would still be 10% of the people in the top 10%, the same okay. as now. So there being, if, if that's what you take pleasure in, is being in the top 10%, there's still gonna be 10% of the people who get that pleasure. Uh, there's still gonna be a few who can say, truthfully, they have the fastest car. Okay. I'm gonna take a couple of questions now. You, sir, at the back, and while we're doing that, the lady here, please put your hand up again. Thanks. So. Just get the microphone round there if you can. And, sir. Uh, I'm David Hardman from the School of Psychology at London Metropolitan University. Uh, my question relates to uh, growing income inequalities. There's a lot of outrage at the moment about uh, salaries at the top of society and the fact that, uh, for example, the public have bailed out various institutions, but those various institutions are now continuing to pay uh, large bonuses. And... A report this week from the St Paul's Institute showed that even many of the people who work within the City of London financial sector believe that their fellow financial sector workers are overpaid. That's, again, this kind of runaway yeah. process, isn't it, of people jockeying for position. And I wonder whether your uh, consumption tax proposal would actually deal with that. I mean, it's not going to stop that, is it? I, I think to really address the kinds of salaries we see in the financial services industry is going to require some serious financial regulation. Uh, that industry uh, was allowed to take big gambles with other people's money. If the gambles paid off, uh, they, they got big paydays uh, privately. If the gambles didn't pay off, we, the taxpayers, ended up You would regulate the remuneration. You would regulate that explicitly. Oh, no, no. I, not necessarily that. I mean, I, if I think a salary is too high, my, my proposal is to tax the, the, the amount people spend out of that salary. Or if, or if you don't want to do that, then tax income. No. Uh, change the structure of that industry so you stop creating these incentives for people to take bets at public expense that, that uh, generate these huge salaries and then they run away with, with uh, separation payments that, that leave us holding the bag. Uh, they, they call the OWS movement, welfare queens. Some of the bankers on Wall Street have been quoted saying that. Uh, the, the true welfare queens are those bankers. They, they're the ones who I'm bailing out with my tax payments. 
You're listening to The Darwin Economy, a discussion with Professor Robert Frank, hosted at the London School of Economics by me, Paul Mason. Madam. Uh, good evening, uh, Dina Blacking. I'm an economics graduate from Trinity College, Dublin. Um, my question is to do with the extent to which you're going to need to impose regulation in order to make this work. With Adam Smith, the idea of free markets, which I support, but with caveats about you know people going crazy and running for bigger and bigger bonuses, at least people buy into that. People support it, as well as letting themselves be regulated. Whereas with this, I feel that no one's going to buy into it. It's going to have to be completely imposed on them. And with that, you're going to really struggle in order to regulate every aspect of the market. I, I think if you'll read the book, you'll see that, that my, my posture about regulation uh, is, is, is fairly restrained. Uh, I think regulators need to be humble. Uh, one, of the, one of the first messages I try to transmit to my students is that just because you found a, an imperfect market outcome compared to some theoretical ideal doesn't mean that the government intervention that you try to impose on that to, to fix it is going to end up making matters better. There, there, there are lots of vivid examples of ineffective regulations that did more harm than good. What I stress in the book is uh, a, a very limited range of regulatory interventions, primarily ones that are targeted to make activities that seem too attractive to individuals less attractive by taxing them. I think there's a lot of room to maneuver before we get into the hard questions. Uh, adults in the audience recognize we need to tax something in order to run the government. It's a question of what we tax. Uh, if we have to tax something, then tax harmful activities, activities that impose costs on others much greater than the benefits that the people are doing the activities get from doing them. There are lots of things like that we have not yet to do that we could do, and until we run out of those things, uh, I'm going to focus on those things as my recommended interventions. Don't you find it interesting, though, as it, someone who teaches uh, undergraduates, as teaches people who arrive at university, that so many of them, uh, like our previous question, arrive at the gates of the modern university as ready-made libertarians? Does that not make you think you're fighting an, a sort of uphill battle here, that people naturally believe that this is natural law? Well, I, I, I think this is, in a way, a response to Samuel Britton's question. Is it a waste of time on this side of the Atlantic to point out the, the deficiency in the arguments based on those slogans? I think there, there are people who come with those slogans everywhere. And, and but reality appears to them to be naturally, as it were, libertarian. It's, there is competition. Smith. Smith describes the natural state of things. And in the state of nature, when we see competition, sometimes it produces things that are good for all of us, but other times, as with the antlers, it produces things that we're not so happy about. I'm seeing Morris Glassman here in the audience. Yeah, I'm also from London Metropolitan University. I'm interested in the competition between systems within the Darwinian system, and I wonder to what extent you think that the social market economy in Germany, which has the vocational training that's binding on all companies, that has the worker representation on boards, um, is a distinctive, I mean, you could describe it in terms of liberty, competition, and the common good, is a distinctive, is something distinctive from Anglo-American capitalism, mm -hmm. and how it could be that the social market economy could triumph over 
the Anglo-American model, particularly at a time when it seems to me that the conclusion that many people, including in the Financial Times, are drawing is that Germans should just spend their savings. <laughs> <laughs> if you really do take to heart the message that individual interests and group interests don't always coincide, then there are lots of different options for trying to realign them, bring them in, into closer alignment. I think the Germans have done some interesting things uh, uh, in, their, in their movements to try to lean against what individuals would find it most attractive on their own to do, to, 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 to behave in ways that as a collective they might f find more advantageous. I mean, I remember being surprised in, when I lived for a bit in Berlin at the Blue Laws. You couldn't, you couldn't shop after, you could only shop one Saturday a month or and, and that was an offense to the libertarian mindset, obviously. Well, you have the right to open whenever you want. But uh, I've got a liquor store friend, uh, owner friend in, in Ithaca. They've been allowed to stay open on Sunday now for the last year. That wasn't possible before. I, I asked him about that. Uh, and he said, yeah, they're, they're, he has to come in on Sunday now. He doesn't sell any more than before. But if he doesn't open on Sunday, then he'll gradually lose customers to, to other shops. So basically, because... I'm getting a tiny little gain by being able to buy wine on Sunday, which I don't need to do. You know, if I if I want to buy, or there could be one shop in town that uh, is open on Sunday on a rotating basis. But all the shop owners now they they've lost their Sunday with their family, and uh, that's that's uh, just a reflection of the fact that if we can do it as individuals, then we have to do it. Uh, if we can sell our safety, we have to sell our safety. If we can work the extra hour, we have to work the extra hour. We can't bid effectively for the house in the good school district. And so I see in Germany, they make you take vacation. Uh, if you don't take your, your generous allotment of vacation, you lose it forever. So that you, can't, you can't stock it up. Uh, in the US, you get one week of vacation to start with. It's barbaric, uh, I think, if you, if you would compare that system to the German system. So yeah, I, I think. Uh, let different national systems experiment with this whole issue of what's, what's in the collective interest and, and maybe some will find useful ways of, of, of realizing the collectively best, best pathway. I should say uh, anybody who feels traumatized by the issues raised by hearing about a place where there are no wine shops open on a Sunday afternoon, we have a helpline you can ring later. <laughs> uh, lady here, and then one more, one more question. Um, I'm an, a Master's of Public Administration student in LSE, uh, and my question actually was very related to the previous one, in the sense that how to define the collective uh, collective good, like because sometimes it's not that straightforward. Sometimes some groups um, are advantaged uh, compared to others. Like, do we define it for like the a, a policy that would benefit the earth or the human beings, or in in what sense? Do, should we look at look at it? I mean, it's it's hard. It's it has many layers. Yeah, that that's obviously a very difficult question to come up with any kind of definitive definitive answer to. I'm, I I take I take inspiration from the fact that we're doing things so inefficiently now in so many ways that that there are options open to us where we don't even have to get into those kinds of difficult questions. There are things we can do that will make each and every person better off in short order. Uh, nobody has to get, I, I said I would do some fiscal alchemy. I would, I would propose a tax lever that you could pull that would generate big gains, uh, trillions of pounds for, for people over time uh, without having to give up anything important. And, and the, 
the punchline of that story is that if everybody builds a smaller mansion addition, nobody's giving up anything important because at some point, the amount you spend on the coming of age party, the amount you spend on the mansion addition, it's relative size that matters uh, in those cases. If you think that's not true, then you would quarrel with this claim I'm making. But I want to see what evidence you would offer to try and persuade a skeptic that that's not true. I, th I think it's, it's plainly true that beyond some point, it's, it's really relative size that matters. One final question up here. Um, hello, Professor Frank. I'm uh, Joe Parker from the uh, School of Biological Sciences at Queen Mary. Um, I think one, a lot of biologists wouldn't be too surprised to hear what you've said today because a lot of us have been trying to find the morals or the altruism in evolutionary biology for about 150 years now. And these, despite the advances theoretically that Hamilton made that have been mentioned, it's very difficult to prove empirically with actual data, with actual living things. And normally these attempts founder because whenever we find anything that looks like altruism, it turns out to be a case of the organism doing something that has a marginal self-interest or will have um, you know, a sufficient uh, uh, possibility of payback at some point in the future. So with that in mind, and bearing in mind that selection for presumably companies or individuals occurs across a whole range of equilibria, not just the antlers, but the ability to digest a certain type of grass or coat colour or anything else. Isn't it the case that most of the um, modifi that any attempt to impose modifications, whether it's regulation or taxes, would simply be interfering with uh, a selective organism's ability to simultaneously optimise across a wide range of variables? Uh, it would, and that's precisely the, the, the goal of the intervention. Uh, but, but, that presumes, sorry, but that presumes that you've got you know, a sufficiently good knowledge of, of what interventions to yeah, take. Yeah, and, and that's why I urge regulators to be humble. If, okay. if, if I were a conservative, I would worry that regulators wouldn't be hum humble, that they would read my book and say, oh, collective interests are different from individual interests, let's regulate everything. I wouldn't want to see that happen. Uh, I think there are, uh, right before us, a limited number of changes in the prices people face that we could, we could implement that would immediately make people much, much better off than they are now. Uh, if, if the ultimate effect of that book were to stimulate people to form uh, coercive governments that tried to micromanage everybody's behavior, I would be, I would be deeply disappointed that I'd written the book in the end. Uh, I, I would not want to see that happen. Well, that's all we've got time for. It just remains for me to thank you, the audience, the London School of Economics, and Professor Robert Frank, and bid you all a safe passage as you go out into the maelstrom that is the Euro sovereign debt crisis. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>